shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, here it is, and once again, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero, and with me always is my good friend on the march to 150 shows, my good friend Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm good, man. I feel like we should play the Imperial March when you say that. So I was just looking at the calendar, you know, as you and I get to schedule shows out. Uh, the 3rd of April will be our 150th show, man. How about that? That's a milestone, man. It's, I don't know how I put up with you for so That's long. That's what I was going to say. Just like a relationship, a, they didn't know that it was going to last. It is a testament to my patience and fortitude for certain. Well, really, I mean, you are going right to heaven, my friend. Right to heaven. Right. Well, maybe not right That's to heaven. Right. I know some of the things you've done, and maybe you're not going right. Application for sainthood approved. That's right. So uh, how things going down there straight out of Pitkin? Oh, man, it's wet, it's miserable, and I've got, as usual, uh, things that need to be done in sunny weather. But I have finally gotten my house painted. I have finally gotten my house painted. I could almost dance a jig, dude. Uh, You haven't seen high comedy and and potential tragedy until you've seen my big butt perched on a 22-foot extension ladder painting the eaves of my house. Did you get the wheels (laughs) off of it yet? Are the wheels off of it? Dude, it was it was kind of <laughs> spooky. I was like, oh, I'm going to die here. That's They're right. gonna find my broken body at the foot of this stepladder and Nancy will be destitute. <laughs> I don't think she'd be destitute, but uh She's got prospects, man. She'd be on sure me. She she, yeah, I'm she, sure she, she does. Yeah, I mean I mean, how can you not? I mean, I remember yeah. back in the old days, I mean, I was dating and I said, Hey, if something happens to me uh you know just make sure that the new guy doesn't wear my clothes and she was like that's crazy they wouldn't fit ralph anyway so i just knew i was in trouble right there <laughs> thanks for catching up kelly i appreciate it at least i got a laugh out I'm of you. Sorry. so you know kelly i'm really excited about the show today and uh one of the things that we haven't done in a long time is really talk about some clinical issues and you know, that used to be one of our segment was the clinical issue. Yep. And uh, we got an email from one of our listeners, Becky Cargill, down there in Texas. And she's asking some questions about CPAP. And since CPAP has become the standard of care, it seemed that it was appropriate to maybe we should start talking about it a little bit and kind of get some of those high points for a good CPAP delivery of the patients that need it. And to help us out, it's good that we have one of the premier educators on our show, and don't get excited, Kelly, it's not you, it's our good friend coming out of New York City, Paul Warfel. Paul, how are you? Hey, good evening, gentlemen. How are you? I paid, I, Kelly, I paid them a lot of money to say that. That's right. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad he wrote it just, he read it just like you wrote it, Paul. <laughs> He's not always reliable that way. So, you know, one of the great. things... Welcome to the show. You know, so one of the things, Paul, is I thought it would be really great. And, Kelly, maybe we switch roles a little bit. So instead of right. kind of tag-teaming Paul. Wait, maybe, wait, wait. Switch roles? I get, to be, I, I get to be the dumb one. You get to be the smart one. For just change. remember, though, I'm always huh? the bigger spoon. I don't care what you say. Oh, okay. But 
I think it would be really cool if we, if you kind of get in on the discussion. So I maybe just ask sure. the questions and, and both of you guys kind of just chime in. So when we talk about CPAP, this is really, really one of the things that have come into the real, into the career field, guys, that have really, you know, the tail has wagged the dog rather than the other way around. Usually we were getting kind of processes and getting procedures out of the hospital. We were really kind of bringing this out in mm-hmm. the career field a little bit more. So, Paul, if we think about CPAP, how has this changed the way that we're treating patients, you know, since we've been in this career field uh, 30 years? Well, to me, the for a person who's in respiratory distress, usually from pulmonary edema, uh, our first response, we were always taught to, to ventilate, positive pressure ventilate and intubate. And uh, this has been a real game changer with regard to the intubation component of this. Uh, it's one of the reasons that my students, not only, I mean, I, I still work as a paramedic about 30 hours a month. Uh, I very rarely intubate anybody. They respond really well to CPAP. Uh, my students for on the educational side are having some difficulty in getting intubations because their patients are being CPAPed as well. And the emergency, the operating room is, has also gone away from intubation for certain cases. And, uh, has gone to LMAs and other rescue airways in those in those cases as well. It's, it's really changed. It's to me, it's one of the game changers. We're looking in New York to try to see whether we can get BLS crews to use it because it's so effective. Yeah, and I think that that's really an awesome thing to do. And and you know, we often think about you know, especially those uh, systems that have tiered systems, there's a lot of things that those BLS providers can do that we're not allowing them to do. And I think that's really a challenge. But Kelly, for the people that don't know, you know, about CPAP, uh, maybe you could just give them a little bit of the difference between uh, CPAP and BiPAP and what actually it does. Well, you know, I'm I'm a uh, founding member of the Society of uh, Bedroom Snorkelers. I've been a CPAP wearer uh, for obstructive sleep apnea for for many years. But basically, what CPAP does is is provide, uh, for lack of a better word, a non-invasive version of PEEP. Um, it it uh, helps enhance. Uh, it, it helps uh, increase end expiratory pressure, um, and thus stent open. Uh, collapsing alveoli and and help root some of the alveoli that have already collapsed. So to a certain extent, it reverses atelectasis and prevents atelectasis from extending further, especially in those patients that have uh, acute pulmonary edema and CHF exacerbation. Um, The the main difference between CPAP and BiPAP is uh, there's some debate on whether one is more effective than the other. Most people think that BiPAP is more effective, but I've seen a, a couple of studies that, that um, seem to question that. Um, but uh, probably the biggest difference between CPAP and BiPAP for the end user is comfort. Um, CPAP is just that constant positive airway pressure, while BiPAP is bi-level positive airway pressure. Typically, a BiPAP machine is set uh, with uh, a peak flow setting where when the patient exhales, they get the full setting. But when they exhale, 
it steps that down somewhat, usually about half the peak setting. So if you have your, your BiPAP set at, uh, at 10, uh, your inhalation pressure is, is 10 millimeters of mercury and your exhalation pressure is 5 millimeters of mercury. Uh, and it's just a little more to- uh, easily tolerated. If you've never worn a CPAP machine, one of the first things you notice is it is difficult to breathe out on those things. And, and that is you know, psychologically a little stressful on some patients, particularly when they're they're struggling for air and we're trying to convince them, hey, this this mass is gonna make you feel awful claustrophobic is actually gonna help. Um so so uh BiPAP tends to be a, a little better tolerated at least uh uh comfort wise by the patients. But that's the main difference between the two. The I'm also in the same union that Kelly's in for the last eight years as well. <laughs> on the uh on the commercial machines that that I have, it's uh, I think it's called in those machines it may be called C Flex or something like that. And what it reminded me of is when you uh, when you scuba dive, the air is being forced in as you as you hit the regulator and inhale. As you exhale, it cuts that pressure, which makes it much easier for you to to breathe. The, yeah. uh, and we with with patients, one of the toughest things to do, as Kelly knows, and you guys know both is that to coach the patient through this, if you're not dealing with a BiPAP, yeah. it can be really difficult. Yeah, and one yeah. of the challenges, too, is going to be that usually when you're using this, people are having respiratory distress as it is. So now what mm-hmm. you're doing is you're confining them with that mask, and now it's kind of making things worse. As they let that happen, you know, certainly they're going to get some relief. So, Paul, you know, Kelly kind of gave a, a little bit of definition of what CPAP was, but maybe we could take it from your side. Uh, we take a patient that has congestive heart failure. They're kind of a little bit full. They're starting to have a little bit of a respiratory distress. They've got some fluid in their lungs. Maybe you can give us just a little bit of the pathophysiology of how this CPAP machine is going to work or how well it works when people now start to have uh, fluid in their lungs from congestive heart failure. Well, what it does, is, as Kelly mentioned, is that it creates a pressure on one side of the alveolar gradient, on the fluid side. And by increasing that pressure, you begin to shift the fluid. And, and not a, not, it doesn't take very long to force that fluid back into, into the vascular bed, at least for the most part. Um, I think, and, and we, it works, it just doesn't work for, for, for pulmonary edema. It works for near drowning, it works mm-hmm. for the patients as well. Um, the, we've seen tremendous results. Patients that I thought that I had already had the laryngoscope out, I had the RSI kit, and they, they, they converted very quickly with positive pressure with rather CPAP or BiPAP. We have a CPAP machine, not really a BiPAP machine. Yeah. The, the hardest thing for me, the hardest thing for most providers to do is not necessarily to set up the machine or, or you know, and they most of them understand the, the pathophys. It requires, it, to me anyway, it requires good patient rapport to convince exactly. them this is going to help. That is the most difficult thing. And, and we teach BLS folks and ALS folks that people are afraid of, uh, of oxygen masks. That's never been my experience, but then again, I've never lunged at one with a, with a handful of oxygen masks. Usually say, here's what I'm going to do, and they usually said, if you come out of like like you're pulling a knife, they're going to balk at that. You, <laughs> really, have, you really have to be convincing and, and empathetic provider to use this, because you're going to have to convince the patient that it actually helps, which it does, and that's the pathophysiology. 
and we've seen tremendous results. Uh, I'm sure Kelly has as well. You know, the the uh, there are two basic causes of, of uh, pulmonary edema. You have increased hydrostatic pressure, and you have uh, increased increased uh, capillary permeability. Uh, the capillary permeability is an inflammatory process, ARDS, that sort of thing. BiPAP or CPAP and BiPAP or or, or PEEP in your typically in your ventilated patient with ARDS uh, is useful for those patients. But the the CPAP, it, what it does is helps. Uh, um, make that al- that alveolar gradient a l- or that hydrostatic pressure gradient a little more shallow because it balances out the pressure, as Paul pointed out, on the other side of the alveolar capillary membrane. Uh, when you combine that with adjunctive therapy with nitroglycerin, especially high-dose nitroglycerin, it is it is a huge difference. Now, one of the things that I, I talk about in some of my lectures is is the resistance that we have to giving nitroglycerin to patients in in uh, sufficient doses to make this possible. But man, when you when you combine CPAP and and high dose nitroglycerin, you know the CPAP to help uh, balance out that pressure gradient and nitroglycerin to give those that fluid somewhere else to go besides the pulmonary vasculature. You can turn patients around uh, dramatically, and and patients that we would have seen um, intubated and on a vent, and their clinical course become much stormier and much more difficult. Uh, we're staving those things off now. I remember back in the day, and I'm sure Paul and you do as well, where when we were young medics, we got to you know congratulate ourselves and clap ourselves on the back. Hey, I tubed that guy, conscious and everything, and now we get to say. Uh, hey, I avoided tubing that guy uh, with with you know in in equal congratulatory measure. Um, that that has its uh, has its drawbacks as as we're as Paul pointed out, we're having fewer opportunities to intubate people in the field, and our skills rust out is, uh, is showing, especially with the with the data that that shows that intubation is really not all that important in cardiac arrest anymore. We're seeing our skills decline because of uh, opportunities for intubation are are uh, declining dramatically. Uh, so we don't have to intubate near as many people. But at the same time, we're also less able to intubate people uh, because of that skill rust out. It's a, it's a, a difficult issue to, to resolve. Well, one of the things, uh, certainly a cause celeb of the day, is that while we're not intubating these people, as Kelly mentioned, their clinical course will be much altered. It's incredibly expensive to have people on ventilators. They wind up with all sorts of infections. They become bedridden, which then they have all sorts of other infections. And it's expensive to have people on ventilators. Um, you know, one of my relatives had pneumonia. Uh, she would have been she would have been intubated, and you know, God only knows what would have happened to her. She was on CPAP for about eight hours, and she reversed the, the pneumonia and the ARDS associated with the pneumonia uh, was much improved. It was dramatic, actually, dramatic. And I thought for sure she was going to be she was going to be sedated and intubated. So I think that's a real concern nowadays with healthcare dollars and other things. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that we were doing is we were intubating these patients. We were almost guaranteeing them to be admitted to the hospital, if not to the floor, uh, to the ICU. And now, as as you guys mentioned, uh, we intubated them. They're now trying to manage their CHF. Um, you know, now they're on a ventilator. Now there's a, the time frame that they got to try to wean these people off the ventilator. One of the amazing things that I've seen in my career is putting somebody with, you know, you, you listen to their lungs, they got rails, you know, you kind of put them on CPAP and they're leaving the hospital the same day. And 
That's yeah. really kind of amazing. But here's another thing that you brought up, Kelly, and I, I want to kind of touch on it. And, and there's been a lot of, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, controversy this way where the talk is, do you give nitroglycerin to somebody that has CHF? But you mentioned it very well. Now with the, and I'm going to let you expound on this a little bit. Now we have CPAP. CPAP is taking care of the challenge of the fluid. We're able now to give nitroglycerin, which is now making mm-hmm. a difference in patient care. Mm-hmm. You know, back in when in the early days of my paramedic education, the holy trinity for CHF was nitro, Lasix, and morphine, uh, and, and they were thought to have all all had a synergistic effect on your acute pulmonary edema patients. But as it turns out, um, the only one of them that was of any benefit is nitro. Lasix for acute management of CHF worthless. In fact, it may even make them worse uh, because you get a sympathetic uh, renal uh, renin angiotensin aldosterone system response to Lasix and that actually drives pressure up. Um, Plus, it doesn't really help us in the field. Um, Lasix is great at emptying people's bladders, but usually they don't call us because their bladders are full. and uh, the morphine, the, the effects of morphine as far as reducing preload are, are overstated. And what little effects it does have are because of uh, a histamine response. And do you really want to destabilize cell membranes in someone who's already drowning in their own fluids? So really, the nitroglycerin is the only thing that we have, uh, um, the only adjunctive therapy aside from ACE inhibitors uh, that are also effective, um, that we can, we can give as adjunctive therapy to CPAP. The problem is, is most people think of nitroglycerin, or most pre-hospital people, and a a few ER physicians I've met as well, uh, think of nitroglycerin uh, strictly in terms of ischemic chest pain. And the doses that we give it are in relation to ischemic chest pain and and targeted at dilation of coronary arteries. Um, For CPAP or for acute pulmonary edema, we need to be giving it in in monster doses that not only reduce preload, but also significantly reduce afterload. And the only way you get the arterial vasodilation from nitro is with big doses. So some of the research out there and, and, and the anecdotal and the case series and, and stuff looking at high-dose nitroglycerin really challenge the conventional wisdom on on nitroglycerin. For example, you know, that uh, we a lower limit systolic blood pressure of 90 uh, for giving nitroglycerin. There's a, there's one very interesting case study out there with 22 dying patients. I mean, dying, knocking at death's door, soon to be eating their salads from the roots up kind of patients who, who got their, uh, who got high dose nitroglycerin. And I mean, when I say high dose, I think the mean dose was like 20 times the, the standard sublingual dose. Um, and, uh, I think 13 of these 22 patients survived. The, but the key factor was is every one of them was profoundly hypotensive when the nitro was started. Uh, uh, most of them, after the nitro was given, regained a blood pressure and a palpable pulse when you could not detect it before. That's how low their blood pressure was. Uh, and now they, you know, that's a good demonstration of the afterload reduction part of, of nitroglycerin and how it really helps with CPAP. Um, you know, this is one of those things that, uh, you know, Paul alluded to it earlier that it's a real game changer. I think if you had to pin down the four things that have really changed the landscape of EMS in the last 10 to 15 years, you would have to say capnography, CPAP, 
uh, video laryngoscopy and probably the current one that's coming up that may be a, a game changer in the future is a point of care ultrasound. Um, but at, at, for certainly in the last few years, CPAP, uh, capnography and video laryngoscopy. Yeah, I'll give you two of those. I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think the other two really uh, have made that big of a difference, but that's my opinion. So <laughs> one of the things I wanted to add, I, and, and again, just to piggyback on, on what Kelly said, with regard to Lasix, it's great to be doing something that's benefiting patients rather than just a wash and, and or harmful. There's been evidence uh, for a long time that Lasix in patients who were, if in fact, let me say it this way, if in fact your patients were in CHF or APE, um, Lasix is, doesn't do much of anything. I mean, the trouble is, is that pre-hospital providers, paramedics, are, this is an educational problem, are not that good at, this, is, at lung sounds of telling the difference between somebody who's in pulmonary edema and somebody who has, has pneumonia. Mm -hmm. If you give Lasix to somebody with pneumonia, you dehydrate them with horrendous results. Yeah, and so, we don't see those. We don't see those results because we typically lack the follow up on those patients. We don't see them getting fluid poured to them a day or two later. Um, and there's there's one uh, study out there that that shows that uh, that compared uh, uh, blood volume and total plasma volume in uh, acute pulmonary edema patients versus normal patients. And interestingly enough, the acute pulmonary edema patients were relatively volume depleted. Um, the issue in acute pulmonary edema the vast majority of the time is not volume overload. It is volume distribution. They have uh, adequate amount of volume. In fact, it may be an inadequate amount of volume. The problem is, is the distribution. It's, they, they don't need less fluid. They just need it in different places. Exactly. What, the, the trouble here is that we, we wind up teaching we wind up teaching providers, and that's the last thing they hear for some of them. They yeah. think, at least from where I stand in New York, and there's a refresher every three years, that these, this material only changes on schedule with their refresher every three years. You know, you can graduate tomorrow, and then a week later, the science changes, and nobody catch up, or maybe if you're lucky for three years. That's part of the problem. Well, that's one of the problems with that, is that we're not keeping up on the, our, the changes that are going on in our own career field. And they're there, uh, but it's some, for some reason, you know, uh, EMS providers uh, take umbrage to the fact that they have to do something called continuing education. And uh, really, for everybody out there, uh, if you know everything there is to know about EMS, raise your hand. I don't know that I can't do it. You know, Paul's here with, uh, you know, 300 years of experience. Kelly's here with another 250 years of experience. We can't do it. Get your Get your butts in the seats and learn some continuing education. But, Paul, let me go ahead and ask you this last question as we're getting up there in time. One of the questions you get all the time, especially from a newer paramedic, is when I put people on CPAP, it seems that their blood pressure always drops. What's, what's the reason for that? What's the pathophysiology behind that? Well, if you, anytime you increase a, a patient's uh, intrathoracic pressure, if you take a deep breath, that'll happen. You, 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 if you, as you increase the chest pressure, intrathoracic pressure, you, you diminish cardiac return. And when cardiac return is diminished, cardiac output is diminished. So anytime you stop blood coming back to the heart, it's like putting your hand on uh, going into a pool filter. The filter's running, but if you cover it up and it's not seeing water, you're not going to have pressure coming out of the other side. And uh, this, this is exactly what happens here. It, it's exactly what happens when people used to hyperventilate 
patients who were in cardiac arrest. It made CPR less effective. Yeah. Because the, the CPR wasn't effective, but you had too much air in the chest. And uh, that'll happen, too, in this case. It, it, it can have, in certain times, we see it can have certain effects on rhythms. It can slow their heart rhythm down, and it, slows, it drops their blood pressure down. Usually not precipitously, but you may see a, a, you know, a, a drop a bit in blood pressure. Not unusual at all. Yeah, that's you know that's one of those those balancing acts that you have to perform in critical care. Sometimes is is balancing the patient's uh, ventilatory needs, uh, their peak with their cardiac output. If you got an intubated patient on a vent, uh, quite often when you dial the peep up to where you think it needs to be, uh, that has some adverse effect on the patient's venous return and their their cardiac output. And that's that's the reason uh, that um, uh, positive pressure ventilation in, in uh, and cardiopulmonary resuscitation has kind of become uh, an equivocal uh, intervention. There are plenty of uh, CPR protocols out there that advocate passive oxygenation rather than positive pressure ventilation for that very reason. Uh, we, um, when we breathe normally, um, we get negative intrathoracic pressure. But when we start resuscitating someone, unless, unless we break out the old iron lungs again, there is no such thing as negative pressure uh, artificial ventilation anymore. It's all positive pressure, and, and that has a, a, a deleterious effect on cardiac output. That, that's, it's, important, it's exactly important to, to, remember, to, to hear is that we need to tell our students that ventilating patients is not physiologically or, 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 or cardiovascularly the same thing as them breathing. It's quite the opposite, actually. Oh, yeah. And, and when you put, when you, again, I'm going to date myself, but in 1975, when we were stepwise putting in four quick breaths and filling the chest up, we weren't doing people any favor. It was quite the contrary. So, again, you know, having people breathe on their own is a good thing. That's one of the reasons that, the, that our nursing staffs go nuts when you bring somebody in with COPD who's intubated. COPDers almost always have cardiac issues. It goes without saying. Yeah. And they never get off the ventilators. And when you try to get them off the ventilators, you have all sorts of difficulties. So, yeah, um, I mean, I think Paul, you're right. Paul 19- didn't want to date himself, but he did anyway. I know. In 1975, <laughs> yeah. I was 10. Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell us again, Grandpa, what it was like to roll a patient over a barrel for CPR and to lift their arms <laughs> over their head and right. in with the good air out. And I had to the carry bag. the patient uphill both ways to the hospital. Barefooted. Barefooted. <laughs> I got to tell you, man, I think we've covered a lot of things, but it opened up a lot of doors as well. We mentioned a lot of things that I think we need to touch on. And, and Paul, maybe you can join us again. I'd really like to talk about the renin angiotensin aldosterone system because one of the things that when we think about ACE inhibitors, this is a very, very powerful system that really kind of screws the body up as the body tries to defend itself. It really kind of works against us. But, you know, it's really great to have you here. And I always like to say that you're the guy with the best muscle in the EMS career field and you taking your time out to uh, share your knowledge with us today. I got to tell you, it's been really awesome. Gentlemen, it's my pleasure. Anything I can do for you, you can call me anytime. I would love it. Paul, I'll see you in a, I'll see you next month or at the end of this month. So in Connecticut, I think I'm going to see you. Is that right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Connecticut. yeah. Be great. Let's, let's have dinner if we can. Most definitely. And, and adult beverages. Uh, well, great to have you on the show, man. Thank you so much, gentlemen. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. And for myself, co-host Chris Ceballero and our special guest, Paul Werfel, 
thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. Uh, thank you for your comments, concerns, questions, and suggestions. Email us some more of them about CPAP or about anything at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>